The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for you. Creator God, we're grateful to be in this space to worship you. And in the busyness and hecticness of our lives, to be reminded by you that we are bound to you because of what you have done through Jesus and that you have come to us in love. And God, would you free us to be the kinds of people who move around in our world, um, connected most deeply to you, that our priorities be shaped by you, and that we bring the fullness of what you are doing in our lives and what you have done in our lives to all that we say and do. Lord, that we be people who reflect your agenda for all of your creation. And God, toward that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching. That everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us toward you so we may partner with you for your preferred future for all of creation. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm willing, I'm willing to bet you that regardless of uh, how different we are or how different you are from anybody else in the room, like maybe the person that you're the most different from in the room or that you've met this week, that there's one thing that we have in common, that regardless of your background or your age, uh, what school you went to, where you were born, what decade, what century you were born in, that we all share this one thing in common. And no matter who you've met, uh, they share it with you. And no matter who you'll ever meet, we all share this in common. And you know what it is? Uh, we all love to criticize leaders. Like, that's the thing that everybody likes to do. Like, just this week, in the last seven to ten days, you've criticized political leaders of the other party. That's what you've done in the last seven to ten days, and you have had plenty of opportunity to do both recently. But we love to criticize leaders, and even when it's not like a political leader, um, you have thought in the last little bit of time, in the last seven to ten days, you, you've thought this to yourself. Maybe you said it out loud. Maybe you said it to a group of people. Maybe you said it to a close group of friends or maybe a group of colleagues and coworkers that you work closely with. You've thought to yourself, if you said out loud, you thought, if I were in charge around here, I don't know why they did it this way. Like, I don't know whose dumb idea this was. Like, who came up with it? I've lived in Houston for 11 years, and every now and then, when the mosquitoes are really bad, I think to myself, whose idea was it to build a city on a swamp? Like, who came up with that idea? But we do this all the time. We love to criticize leaders. And you'll catch yourself if you're paying attention. You'll be out in public, maybe at a restaurant, maybe you're at a mall, and you'll see some kid and some parents, and that kid is just like off the rails. And you think to yourself, my kid wouldn't do that. <laughs> or if that were my kid, or you, you know couples, and you go and you have dinner with them, y'all have a good night, and then you're having that drive back home, like after dinner with friends, and you're like, I don't know how he puts up with that. <laughs> You've had this thought, because we've all had this thought. We love to criticize leaders. But what we don't ever think about is this idea. Why? Why do we like to criticize leaders? 
Because here's another thing that we have in common. I know it's true of me. I suspect it's true of you too. I was consulted for my greatest regrets. Like when I look back at the span of my life, at the things that I look back on and go, wow, I don't know why I did, why I said, why I went, what happened there. Like I was consulted for my greatest regrets. Matter of fact, I was the mastermind behind my greatest regrets. Like, I'm the fool who proofed it. I came up with that idea. I cast the deciding vote for my greatest regrets. Like, nobody made me do it. I chose to do that. And and I know that a lot of us have things in our past that were visited upon us, things that we did, but those aren't regrets. Regret is finding fault in your own past decisions. And when it comes to me, when it comes to you, you were the mastermind behind your greatest regret. It's not like you weren't consulted, right? Like, same is true for me. Like, I chose to eat that. I chose to not work out. I chose to put that on the credit card. We bought that car. I chose to swipe left or swipe right. I don't know how all that works. (laughs) But you were there. You were consulted for your greatest regrets. And, And so we have this existence where on one hand, we just love to criticize leaders. We love to criticize other people's decisions. But we know when we're a little bit more thoughtful that we were consulted for our biggest regrets. And so a thoughtful, a reflective reflective person (coughs) might ask themselves, if that's the case, why should anybody listen to me? Like, if, if I know that I was the mastermind behind my greatest regrets, why should anybody listen to me? So, so when you're at home and you and your husband, you and your wife, you're, you're in the middle of that tense conversation about what you're going to do with this money or where you're going to go on vacation or we're going to do this and this is going on with the kids, why should anybody listen to you? Or, or you're at work and you're talking with a boss or coworkers, you're working on a team and, and everybody kind of wants to do this thing and, and you want to do something else, you think this is a better use of everybody's time and energy and the resources, why should anybody listen to you? When you're at home watching football and they run the ball on third and 22nd, (laughs) why should anybody listen to you? Because you know what I know, that we were all present. We were all consulted on our biggest regrets. But here's the problem that we face. Every one of us, somewhere, is a leader. Everyone here is responsible for someone or somebody or some money. Every one of us has people that we lead. And some of us are political leaders and there are people who are under our sphere of influence that we have to be really careful and thoughtful about what we do. And some of us are business leaders. We lead in our company. We lead a team. We're in management. And we need to be careful about what we think, about what we do, and how we lead. Some of us are responsible for schools or classrooms in schools. Others of us 
are responsible for a wife or a husband. We lead a family. We have children. Some of us, because God's been good to us, our family been good to our career, like we have resources that we're supposed to be in charge of. Why should anybody listen to you? And so what I want to spend a little bit of time talking about today is since everybody has something or somebody that they lead, they're responsible for, how do you and I become people worth following? Because you're going to have to lead. You're going to have to make decisions. So how do you become the kind of person who's worth following? And since we've been watching movies this summer, uh, we're going to watch another one. This is one of my daughter's favorite movies. It's Black Panther. And that always gets cheers. It's great. Six times over two weekends, that movie always gets cheers. From now on, I'm just going to start sermons by going, Black Panther, and then we can go. Well, for those of you who don't know why everybody else is cheering, uh, Black Panther is the story of the king of an African country named Wakanda. And long, long, long ago, a meteorite uh, hit Africa, this one country, Wakanda, and this meteorite had this element in it called vibranium. And because of vibranium, the Wakandans, over all of these years, over all of these centuries, have had advanced weaponry and technology and medicine when they've never chosen to share it with the world because they knew instinctively that if the wrong kinds of people, people who weren't worth following, were to get their hands on this element, that they would wreak havoc on the world. And the king of Wakanda is a character named T'Challa. And T'Challa becomes the king after his father, T'Chaka, is killed in an attack um, at a gathering of international leaders. And so T'Challa is the Black Panther. Because to be the king of Wakanda means that you are both king and the Black Panther. And it's the vibranium that gives you the abilities, the supernatural abilities to be the Black Panther. But T'Challa believes that his father was killed by another character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe named the Winter Soldier. And in the movie, Captain America, Civil War, T'Challa tries to exact revenge on the Winter Soldier. But it's after this big chase scene and they fight uh, in Civil War that T'Challa explains to Captain America and the Winter Soldier what he thinks it means to be a person who's worth following. So you like cats? Sam. What? Duke shows up dressed like a cat. You don't want to know more? Your suit. Vibranium? The Black Panther has been the protector of Wakanda for generations. A mantle passed from warrior to warrior. And now because your friend murdered my father, I also wear the mantle of king. 
So I ask you, as both warrior and king, how long do you think you can keep your friends safe from me? So how do you become the kind of person worth following? So one of the things that T'Challa understands about leadership is that now that his father has died, thank you, now that his father has died, that he has been past the mantle of both king and Black Panther. And he says, here's my job now. I'm the king. I'm to rule Wakanda, but I'm also the Black Panther. I am to protect Wakanda. And, and you see, like through his words and through his emotion, that he has been handed this, and it is something that he expected, but is not something that he wanted. And so leadership all through the scriptures, every person that you've ever looked to, if you've opened the Bible, if you know the Bible well, and you've read about the heroes of the faith, every one of them stepped into a position of influence, a position of leadership, because it was a burden. And so leadership begins with a burden, not with bluster. And we live in a world that really fundamentally sees leadership as bluster. It's about your own chest thumping and telling the world how great you are. And to tell everybody how great you are, what you have to then do is diminish everyone else. So if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, the greatest spiritual leader in the history of the Hebrew people is a man named Moses. And Moses is the one who leads God's people out of Egypt. And if you remember early in his story, the Pharaoh of Egypt decides that he's going to kill all the little boys, all the little Hebrew boys, because the Hebrews were slaves and they were becoming too many, and he was worried about a slave uprising. But Moses, Moses' sister and his mother, put him in a basset and send him up the Nile River, and he ends up at the Pharaoh's house, and that's where he's raised. And so he's raised in Pharaoh's house. He's got the best education in the world, the best military training in the world. He has access to all of the things that a kid being raised in Pharaoh's house would have access to. But he knows that he's not an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. And as he comes into his adulthood and he deals with his own identity, he starts to feel things that he hadn't felt about who he belongs to. And so this is the way that the scriptures pick up Moses' story in Exodus 2. Years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to observe his people, the Hebrews, and he witnessed the heavy burden of labor forced upon them. He also witnessed an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brothers. He looked around to see if anyone was watching, but there was no one in sight. So he beat the Egyptian just as the Egyptian had beaten the Hebrew. Moses ended up killing the Egyptian and hid the dead body in the sand. He went out again the next day and saw two of his Hebrew brothers fighting with each other. Moses confronted the offender. Why are you hitting your friend? Who made you our prince and judge? Why should anybody listen to you? Are you going to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Fear immediately gripped Moses. The news of what I did must have spread. I must get out of here quickly. Moses was right. When the news reached Pharaoh, he sought to have Moses killed. But Moses ran away from Pharaoh until he reached the land of Midian. There he sat down beside a well. So Moses has been educated in the best way. Like he <coughs> has all of the tools and background to lead. And he starts to act out of emotion and tribalism and fear and finds himself out in Midian, in the desert, all by himself, sitting beside a well. And this is what it is to be a person of bluster. 
to do things out of impulse, out of control, out of emotion, out of nationalism and tribalism like Moses tried to do. And he ends up being the person. He's the person that God calls to lead God's people, but he's not ready yet because he thinks that leadership is about Moses and not about people. Because Moses acts out of the good of Moses, and it's the kind of leadership that makes the person feel really good about themselves, but it doesn't help anybody. And you know this if you've ever sat in an office or worked with people and someone's ever said something like, because I'm the boss. Or when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Or when you sat around and someone said, because I'm in charge. Or a little closer to home maybe, because I said so. <laughs> Leadership begins with a burden for others, for the well-being of others, not the well-being of the leader. It's never about what the leader wants. It's about what the people need. And people don't just need rule. People need guidance and protection. So Moses spends 40 years learning how to become the kind of person who's worth following. And if you know the Bible, you or you've seen the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, you know Moses ends up going and having this conversation with God in the burning bush, and they have this, I don't want to go, you're going to go, I don't want to go, you're going to go, I don't want to go. And then Moses says this. He says, who am I to confront Pharaoh and lead Israel's children out of Egypt? And this is really important for us to know. Bad leaders, bad leaders say, look at me. Look at everything that I've done. Good leaders ask, who am I? Who am I, God, that you have given me such great responsibility, that you've given me this business to take care of? that you've given me this team of people to nurture? Who am I, God, that you trusted me with this department? Who am I, God, that you trusted me with these children? Who am I that you have entrusted to me this husband, this wife, these people who are made in your image? Bad leaders say, look at me. Good leaders ask, who am I? Well, T'Challa is the king of Wakanda. But it's not easy to be the king of Wakanda because to become the king and Black Panther, you have to do a couple of things. And one is a combat ritual. And at your coronation, the entire nation comes together, at least representatives of the entire nation come together. And anyone who has got a birthright can challenge in a physical combat the king to become the king. So everyone comes together and there's going to be a fight. And T'Challa wins the fight. And the way it works is if anybody challenges aunt, uncle, cousin, whoever it is, as long as you have a birthright, you can challenge for the, to be the king. And you either yield or you're killed. So T'Challa wins and 
becomes both the king of Wakanda and the Black Panther. But it's not too long after that that there is a visitor to the nation of Wakanda, a character named Eric, who T'Challa has had one run-in with, and he knows who he is. But Eric is actually T'Challa's cousin. He was raised in America, and he has a different idea of what Wakanda should do and be than T'Challa does. And when he arrives, they have this conversation. Is this man Wakandan or not? Teta, speak. I'm standing in your house, serving justice to a man who stole your vibranium and murdered your people. Justice your king couldn't deliver. I don't care that you brought Claw. Only reason I don't kill you where you stand is because I know who you are. Now what do you want? I want the throne. <laughs> hey, you, the tuna. <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what tools are those? Vibranium. Your weapons. Our weapons will not be used to wage war on the world. It is not our way to be judge, jury, and executioner for people who are not our own. Not your own. But didn't life start right here on this continent? Swaying so all people your people? I am not king of all people. I am king of Wakanda. And it is my responsibility to make sure our people are safe and that vibranium does not fall into the hands of a person like you. Mm. Son, we have entertained the charlatan for too long. Reject his request. Oh, I ain't requesting nothing. Ask who I am. You're Eric Stevens, an American black operative, a mercenary nicknamed Killmonger. That's who you are. That's not my name, princess. Ask me, King. No. Ask me. Take him away. Ungubani, Indingu, Indadaka! Unyanaka Ndobu! Huh? Unyanaka Ndobu? I found my daddy with panther claws in his chest! You ain't the son of a king, you are the son of a murderer! We have all seen, son! Lies! I'm afraid not, Queen Mother. Huh? What? You? Indanda Toka Ndobu. Hey, Auntie. I'm exercising my blood right. The challenge for the mantles of King and Black Panther. Do not do this, T'Challa. As the son of Prince Injobu, he is within his rights. He has no rights here. The challenge will take weeks to prepare. Weeks? I don't need weeks. The whole country ain't gotta be there. I just need him and somebody to get me out of these chains. T'Challa, what do you know of this? 
I accept your challenge. You ever been to a family event and everything's cool until the cousins show up? <laughs> so Eric shows up, he's got a right to challenge for the throne. And to Charles in this place, where, where he's the king and he could say everybody in the room is virtually on his side, and he could be done with the whole thing. But he accepts the challenge because part of what it means to be a person worth following is to choose courage. And don't you know that the people through, the, through your life that you have admired most, that you've been the most willing to follow, that those have been courageous people? And courage doesn't always mean like taking a hill in battle or standing up for some great cause with some bold declaration. The challenge, the challenge of courage is to do the things that you have the influence, the power, the resources to do that you don't have to do. So way back in the last century when I was in high school, I hated riding the bus. And so my mom had to get to work, and so she would drop me off at school, and I would get to school about an hour early every morning. It was a great opportunity to catch up on homework and all of that. And we would sit in this big commons area, and that's just where all the students funneled in when we got to school in the mornings. And there were only about five or six of us in the school building by the time that I got there. I got there so early. And it wasn't long after when I got there, a bus came. And this was what we called in the late 80s, early 90s, we called it uh, the special ed bus. And there were a number of kids who got off the bus. But one of the girls there had both uh, some mental deficiencies and some physical deformities. And part of her physical deformity was that she had uh, a sloped forehead and a really long nose. And high school kids being high school kids. Like most everyone referred to her as rat girl. And because of her mental deficiencies, she would walk around when, we got, when she got to school and try to say hi to all the kids in this enormous commons. And there weren't many, very many of us there. And there were some kids, and I would sit and watch this take place uh, from where I sat in the commons every morning that she would walk up to and she would stick out her hand and, and try to say hi. And they would get really close to shaking hands. And then they would run away and yell, like, oh, and get, get away from her. And then all their friends would laugh about it. And there I was on the other side of the commons just sitting at a table, actually thanking God that she never came and talked to me because I didn't know what I would do. And I had that crazy idea that many high school kids have that if you are somehow the least bit respectable or kind to people that are perceived lower on the social uh, ladder than you, then that somehow brings you down rather than lifts them up. And as I reflect on that now and even a little bit then, I realize like in, in high school I had lots of friends. I had lots of influence. There were things that, that I could have done. It probably would have meant a lot for me to be proactive. But I just didn't. And so one of my regrets is I just sat and watched this play out every day and never did anything. And never chose courage. 
the simple courages of protecting the weak and the vulnerable, using your voice, your influence, your money, your resources to help others, to serve others. And what we tend to do is because we have so much money and so many resources, instead of choosing courage, we just choose protection, but just for ourselves. Most of the time, for most of the people in this room, when something difficult happens, we can find or buy our way out. But those aren't the people that you respect the most. Those aren't the people that you say, that woman, that man, that's who I want to follow. You don't want to follow anyone for whom everything has been easy. That's not the story we tell. Well, you know Susan, she rose to the top and served a lot of people, but she never had to really do much to do it. Choosing courage. When King David is about to die, he brings his son Solomon in, and this is what he tells him. He says, be strong, courageous, and effective. Do not fear or be dismayed. I know that the eternal God, who is my God, is with you. He will not abandon you or forsake you until you have finished all the work for the temple of the eternal. That little word dismayed. <coughs> Better translation for that is do not fear and do not be discouraged. Do not have your courage robbed from you. Do not avoid the things that cause courage. And courage, as David tells Solomon, is finishing the work. <coughs> and for many of us, right now in our relationships, maybe in a marriage, as good as date nights and counseling and all of those things, are, and they're wonderful and they are needed, that maybe what's really lacking in your relationship is courage. You need to say some things and go some places and explore some things that you haven't. And maybe with some of our kids, to get them on the track that we feel like will produce the most flourishing for them, we're going to have to do something that takes courage. Maybe when we look around and we see some things happening in our place of business that we know that is not God's intent for how people are to live or to be treated, but it's happening everywhere else, and I don't know if I should stand up. I don't know if I should say anything. What we really need is courage. Because it's one of the things, one of the characteristics, one of the traits that helps us be the kind of people who are worth following. Well, T'Challa accepts Eric's challenge. And the twist of the movie is that in their combat ritual, T'Challa loses. He is thrown off a waterfall and presumed to be dead. And as soon as that happens, Eric starts on his own agenda to visit violence and get vengeance on all the world, at least all the people in the world that he thinks deserves it. But T'Challa is found by his sister and his mother, and they nurse him back to 
to health. And so he's not dead and he never yielded. And so we see the last little bit of what it means to be the kind of person worth following in this final fight between T'Challa and Eric. Have the spies been alerted? Yes. Some resistance to our new mission, but the war dogs in London, New York, and Hong Kong are standing by. We'll strike there first. The others will come around. Look at this. A handheld sonic cannon, powerful enough to stop a tank. Traceable by metal detectors. And we got thousands of them. The world's gonna find out exactly who we are. King now. Get those planes in the air. Carry out the mission. Shoot it now. Copy that. Go, 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 go. Come on, Ross. Wakabi, man, kill this clown. Wakabi, the challenge is not complete. What will we do? What a tribe! Bambi! No! Your heart is so full of hatred, you are not fit to be a king! Don't you just kind of want to finish watching it? <laughs> so here's the thing. You got two kings. Who are you going to follow? And for those of you who have seen the movie, and I want to ruin it for those of you who haven't, but the truth of the matter, like philosophically, what we find out in the end, is that Eric is right that they should be sharing their resources with the rest of the world. And matter of fact, this is the same thing that, that T'Challa's childhood friend, Nakia, told him at the beginning of the movie. And people have told him time and time and time again. Like, he's actually right. But there in that scene, Io looks at the rightful king who came about it in the right way, and she says, your heart is full of hatred. You are not fit to be king. You are not a person worth following. And so what we see is that to become the kind of person who's worth following necessarily 
means being the kind of person who has certain virtues and rejects certain vices. Even though Eric is right, we discover that being right in the wrong way is wrong. And you know this already because you have sat down with people, maybe people in your family, maybe it was your parents or your grandparents, maybe it is a cousin. You've sat down with people in the office, you've gotten on your computer and you've scrolled through your Facebook feed and you've discovered that being right in the wrong way is wrong. And it's always wrong. At the beginning of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King wrote a letter to all of his captains who were captains around the country leading a nonviolent resistance. And this is what he wrote. He says, as you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Always avoid violence. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. That being right in the wrong way is wrong. And, and the Bible wants us to get this because the scriptures will tell us things like, parents, discipline your children. But then it will say, but do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them to anger or annoy them, which is really easy to do. <laughs> and the scriptures will say, Confess your sins to one another. Be open and honest about your sins. But they don't tell us. But restore one another with gentleness and mercy. And you've known people who couldn't hold that tension, who were so concerned with being right that they never thought about being right in the right way, and they were so often right in the wrong way, and that means that they were just wrong. And so if you want to lose your relationship with your spouse, if you want to lose your relationship with your children, if you want to lose influence in your company or community, if you never want to be able to leverage all of your giftedness and smarts to make the world a better place, the easiest way to do that is to go around the world being right in the wrong way. And you know this instinctively because you know that you already can't stand people who are right in the wrong way. So when T'Challa first becomes king, there's another part of the ritual where they drink from this plant, this herb, and has a vision of the ancestral plane where he has a conversation with his father. And in that conversation with his father, T'Chaka says this to his son. He says, you are a good man with a good heart, and it's hard for a good man to be king. And I think in a lot of ways, 
this movie is just a meditation on that thought. Can a good man, can a good woman be a good leader? And when I wake up every morning, one of the things that gives me an increasingly large amount of sadness is that every day, more and more, we believe less and less in good leaders. That people, to be a good leader, would require to be a good woman, to be a good man. That more and more we expect less and less of ourselves for the somebodies and the some things that we have been given. And we expect less of others to the point that now we actually believe that the woman, the man with the corner office, with the big chairman's desk, that the person at the top of the pyramid, that the reason they got there is because they weren't a good person. And that's the way to get there. That our goodness actually holds us back. And that's why the most provocative thing that I could ever say to any group of people is what Jesus teaches is true because we have so much trouble believing it. But when Jesus gets his disciples around, he says, I'm going to show you how to change the world when I'm gone, which is what they did. Those 11 men plus the disciple that they added later shaped all of Western civilization civilization. They shaped all of history, that we're here today because of what they did. Even though we think that you can't be a good person and a good leader, that's what they did. Everything that you've experienced in your lifetime, so much of it has to do with these 12 men. And when Jesus got them around, he said this about leadership, about being a person worth following. He said, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them with power but not so with you. And then Luke 6 says, how are you going to do this? How did all of us arrive here today? Jesus told his disciples this. He says, a good person, a good person does good from the goodness stored inside. You and I cannot be people worth following if we are not good people. And we should not convince ourselves that other people are people worth following if they are not good people who do good things from the goodness stored inside them. So when you walk out of these doors today and you inventory all of the things that God has given you to lead and all of the people that God has entrusted you with, the question for us is how do we, how do we become good? Because when Jesus comes to earth, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us two things. That he is fully human. 
like he's a real man and that he is fully God and that God is king. Jesus Christ manages to do what we think no one can do. That he is the good king. And he invites us in through the power of the Holy Spirit to be good along with him. Let me pray for you. God, open us up to your goodness to lead from a place of goodness, to recognize and realize what in the world is good, that in our final days that we can look back at our lives as you did after creation and see the places that we have touched and not call them perfect or flawless, but to call them good. And give us eyes to know and see and sense and taste goodness, the life that you have called us into to change the world that you have given us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.